I'm Pete McCall. Welcome to episode 117 of All About Fitness. Sometimes I pontificate a little bit during an introduction, but not today. For this episode, it really is a lot of fun to sit down with Coach Mike Boyle. Mike Boyle is the founder of Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning based in Boston, or right outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And I want to talk to Mike today because he's a rare guy in fitness. Mike is one of those people who's not afraid to change his mind or not afraid to admit that maybe he was wrong before. And you know what? I think Mike can back it up. I know he has two NCAA rings from working with Boston University. He's helped them win hockey championships in, in collegiate hockey. I know he's worked with the Boston Red Sox. He's trained a number of professional athletes in a number of sports. And more importantly, he's trained a number of just average people, helping them improve their quality of lives. Mike makes a living. Mike is one of the early generation, one of the first generation strength coaches who's been doing this for a long time. And he's well known for always changing his, not always changing his mind, but Mike's not afraid to admit he's wrong. And that's what I want to speak with him about today. I want to ask Mike, you know, what's his process? How does he keep himself educated? How does he keep himself on top of his game? And if you haven't heard of Mike Boyle, man, you're in for a treat because Mike really is just, he's a great guy. He knows his stuff. He's very direct. He's very candid, which, you know, if you're not ready for it, that, that's an awesome trait that he has. He has a couple great books out on functional training. I'll have a link to his most recent one down below in the show notes. I will also have a link to his Mike Boyle strength and conditioning page so you can follow up with him and see what he has to offer. After a brief word from the sponsors of All About Fitness, Hyperware, and TerraCore Fitness, it really is a lot of fun to sit down with Coach Mike Boyle. Take your training up a notch with the most comfortable, flexible, and form-fitted weight vest on the market. If you're looking for a really cool weight vest, I really recommend the vest by Hyperware. You have both the Vest Pro and Vest Elite. That's how I was introduced to Hyperware originally a number of years ago. I reviewed the vest for the American Council on Exercise, and immediately I thought it was one of the coolest products I had tested. The Hyperware vest is form-fitting, so it fits snugly. You know, if you've ever worn a heavy vest that's uncomfortable, it doesn't allow you to move, well, the Hyperware vest is completely different. Because it fits right to your body, it adapts right to your body, it allows you to do all sorts of bodyweight movements. And the weights are very adjustable, so you can make it heavier for strength-based exercises or a little bit lighter if you just want a little bit of overload for endurance training. Go to Hyperware.com and check out the vest. If you're interested in purchasing one, you can use code AAF10. That's code AAF10 to save 10% on the purchase of a vest. Hi, this is Pete McCall, the host of All About Fitness. Now, in my 20 years as a fitness professional, I've been approached by many companies asking me to review their product, to recommend their product, and more often than not, I take a look at what they have to offer and I just kind of say thanks, but no thanks. I'm not interested in working with any company or any product that I don't believe in 100%. So when I saw the TerraCore, I immediately knew right away this is a product I wanted to work with. The cool thing about the TerraCore is that it's an inflatable bench. That's right, folks. The TerraCore was designed to be a bench first, and the inflatable cushion in it allows more range of motion from your body. When you lay on a normal bench, the bench restricts motion in your shoulders and can compress your spine. But laying on the inflatable, the inflatable side of a TerraCore allows a little more range of motion in your spine. It doesn't put the direct pressure on your spine and your shoulder blades. So if you're looking for a great piece of equipment to use at home, not only can the TerraCore work as a bench, but it can also work as a balance trainer. It can work as a core trainer. You can lay across it and train your core in a variety of different ways. 
and you can flip it upside down and, and use the handles to do a number of creative drills for the upper body. The TerraCore is one of the most creative, versatile tools I've seen in a long time. Go to TerraCoreFitness.com, check them out, and you can use code AAF10, that's code AAF10, to save 10% on the purchase of a TerraCore of your own. I'm Pete McCall of All About Fitness, talking today with Coach Mike Boyle out of Boston. Uh, Mike, can you give us a quick rundown about what you do? What do I do? I do a whole bunch of stuff, actually. Basically, I own a facility. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a dad. I have a couple of facilities outside of Boston where we train all kinds of people from the elite of the world, you know, Olympic gold medalists in a whole bunch of different sports to mom and dad and their kids. So we, we kind of see the whole gamut. I spent 30 years in collegiate strength and conditioning at Boston University, and I've spent about 12 years in professional sports between the Bruins and the Red Sox. If that math doesn't add up, it's because it, back in the good old days, I was the Bruins strength coach and the BU strength coach at the same time. So uh, it, it makes the math a little bit easier to, to understand. Well, one thing about that is you know, the, the, the field of strength condition is relatively young, right? I mean, what, what happened? Well, in the 70s, like a lot of professional athletes in the U.S. didn't even do strength training. When was it that you could finally make a living as a strength coach? So you could finally make a living as a strength coach. I would say right around 1980 was the first time I knew of anybody getting a job as a strength and conditioning coach and being paid. And I wouldn't even know if you could make a living, but you could get a job and get paid. And actually some of my uh, my early influences were guys at Springfield College who came on, Mike Wojcik, who's still in the NFL uh probably going on close to 40 years in strength and conditioning and Mike got a job at Syracuse I still remember he was the track field event coach and the football strength coach that was probably 1979-80 and then another guy named Rusty Jones who also is in, in, in still in the NFL with the uh, Indianapolis Colts did the same thing got a job working with the Pittsburgh Penguins and then this is really getting historical. The Pittsburgh Maulers in the USFL, which was one of those uh, little fledgling competing with the NFL leagues. But so I think early 80s, it was a kind of a conglomeration of part time things. But that was when I realized, wow, I can actually do this and maybe eventually I'll get paid. And so I kind of I gave up. I was an athletic trainer. That was my uh, what my real training in college was. And I gave up my athletic training job to be a uh, volunteer strength and conditioning coach and a bartender. <laughs> well, actually, that's a really good that, – that's a good point right there, Mike, because listeners might not understand that. And I think I hear the terms thrown around a lot like athletic trainer and, and conditioning coach. There is a distinct difference. How would you describe the difference between an ath- what an athletic trainer does and what a strength coach does? You know, an athletic trainer – and it's funny. I used to always say there's such an athletic trainer is such a terrible name because you would think that an athletic trainer trains athletes – and that's absolutely not true. A strength and conditioning coach trains athletes. An athletic trainer is sort of your, your primary injury care person, your kind of first line of defense before you get to physical therapy or get to a doctor or whatever that is. You're going to see your athletic trainer with your team who is kind of a, a healthcare professional or a healthcare paraprofessional. And athletic training, you're going to deal with everything from – ear infections and eye infections and sprained ankles and colds and you're really the the kind of first medical contact for an athlete whereas 
but you're also doing injury rehabilitation. You're doing injury prevention. It's it's kind of a broad based job, and it, in all honesty, it was one that I didn't enjoy very much. <laughs> Well, is it because you're dealing with somebody after you've been injured? Whereas as a strength coach, you, you keep them from getting injured? Yeah, I didn't I didn't like the kind of day-to-day. I didn't like sitting watching practice, which is one thing that athletic trainers do a lot, is they just have to sit. I used to always think the one thing I didn't like about athletic training is you sat around and waited for something to happen. And if something happened, it was bad. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, so that, that wasn't all that enjoyable because you're watching practice. And really the only time that you're watching practice that you're really going to be useful is if something bad happens and somebody gets hurt. So uh, I found myself, wow, you know, thinking, gee, this is boring that I'm watching. You know, sometimes I'd be watching four hours of practice a day and not really doing anything. And I think I wanted a more proactive role as opposed to a reactive role in strength and conditioning. I was into lifting. I actually competed in powerlifting in college. So I was very into lifting. But at that time, I couldn't quite figure out how I was going to get my my love of the weight room to to translate into something that I could do in the sports world, as as we said, because really this this thing that I do now really did not exist at that point in time. It, what it, I mean, so along with that, along with professionalism, in the last you know thirty five, you've been doing this since the late seventies, early eighties, correct? Mm-hmm. And what have been some of the biggest changes that you've seen, like in terms of how the industry has progressed? Well, it's really funny because I was looking, you had sent me some questions so that I could kind of cheat on this thing. And I've answered this question before. I laughed because the biggest changes, a cellular phone, a computer, I mean, the fact that we don't have to write stuff down. So we've seen some some massive changes from going out on the field with a walkie-talkie, literally – to practice so that if something happened, you could radio back into the training room if you needed help to the fact that now everybody has a cell phone and everybody is freely available to communicate anytime, any place. And now God, think about it. There was no internet. Now you can be at practice on the internet and you and, can be coaching people on the other side of the world. Yeah. And communicating with people on the other side of the world and getting information. I, I always, I kind of laugh. We talked a little bit before we got on about our kids and, for when I was a kid, you needed to have access to a library. You needed to know how to what an encyclopedia was, and you needed to know how to use microfiche. And uh, there were just all these things, and you had a transistor radio, and you had a record player or a, a cassette player, and and now all that stuff is in a phone. And that phone contains. I, I read one of my favorite books of last year it was a book called "Most Likely to Succeed," and one of the things that they said in the book was that we need to forget about the knowledge economy. We need to forget about learning things because we'll never be smarter than our phone. There's no reason to memorize foolish facts for tests because you can simply say, Siri, what's this? And your phone will tell you. And so those changes have been remarkable and they've been changes within the world, obviously, but they've also been changes that have significantly impacted areas like athletic training and strength and conditioning. Well, and that's interesting because ours is a somewhat low-tech field and and you work with both general general consumers and you also work with athletes. And I think, to, Mike, and maybe you know, I'd be interested in your point of view on this, I think sometimes what I like about the gym, it's a place where I can be low-tech. I don't need to, you know, I'll listen to my phone, but it's only for music or actually I listen to a lot of podcasts when when I work out or I listen to uh, my, my, my thing for the last year or two has been listening to comedy from Pandora. 
The only downside is if uh, if uh, you know C- Louis uh, C- Louis C.K. or is doing a bit or somebody's doing a really funny bit and you have heavy weight in your hands, you, it's hard not to laugh and, and drop something on your foot. Um, but it's a good it's a good time for that. I really one of the things I like about fitness is that it's relatively low tech. Do you think that we need tech and fitness? No, I don't think we need tech at all. And it's funny we don't. So, in, for instance, in our facility, you're not allowed to wear a headset. So you couldn't listen to podcasts, listen to your own music if you trained in our gym. And I do that intentionally. In all honesty, I always tell everybody that it's a safety issue, but I really think it's a society issue in terms of it forces everybody to be interactive instead of having this gym where you've got 100 people in there and everybody kind of doing their own dance and marching to their own beat. Everybody's listening to whatever we're piping in. We use RockBot, which is a great little system for getting music into your, to your facility legally. And um, and everybody has to train and interact. And I think that has a huge part to do with our success. So, um, I know I don't – we have – I would say uh, my zone, heart rate monitors, is probably the extent of our real use of technology within the facility. So you're not you're not tweeting out, texting out your workouts to everybody and – and staying in twenty contact with them twenty four seven. No, I mean we do encourage our coaches to to text their clients. I, I would ideally love them to text everybody every day, but it's more how are you, how do you feel, when are you coming in again, kind of thing. We do a little bit of online training, but almost none of it is with people. I don't think we have anybody in house who actually uses our online stuff. It's more a way to get workouts out to people who are kind of far removed from us. So, yeah, we don't uh, – we're – as much as tech has been one of the big, biggest advancements, it's not really something that we use a great deal. And I think that's actually not a bad thing because I do think that the gym – and I like your rule of no headphones because uh, I do think that's a great, a great thing to do because one of the things and, – and we could probably you know, go way off on a tangent on this. But I think one of the issues in our society is that we're just not talking to each other. You know, If you stand in line at Starbucks, Mike, or if I'm waiting for an airplane – Nobody's talking to you. Know, you're not even having stupid idle conversations about the weather or the, the Bruins or whoever. You're just you know, on your phone. You're not interacting with people around you. Oh, exactly. That, that's exactly my – I feel like personal music is incredibly antisocial in the gym. And as a result, I don't like it. I've never liked it. I've never liked the, the person working out with headphones on or the headset or whatever. And so we don't allow people to do it. I think that's, that's a great thing. So seeing kind of how fin- the, the fitness industry has evolved and what ways, I don't even think we need to, but are there any ways that you think that it could evolve further in terms of what we're doing now versus what we were doing maybe 20, 25 years ago? It's interesting when you think how we can evolve further. I think sometimes, uh, I don't know if evolve or, or devolve, I think that more places will move back to where we are now in terms of realizing that it really is about people and that it is about being interactive. And I think you may see more and more places like even for us, we basically have a no, you can't have your phone on the floor. And, and we do have, I think we have exceptions. Okay. If somebody's got something really urgent for work and they're waiting for a call, maybe their, their trainer or their coach will have their, you know, will be holding their phone for them. We'll let trainers or coaches have their phone out if they want to get a quick Instagram video but in general, we do not want people to be on their phones. And this is what's very interesting now because I've had a bunch of discussions with people who have products and the product needs an app. Mm, yeah. 
And, and I always tell him, that's not going to work. Now, what do you mean it's not going to work? I said, it's not going to work. I said, the last thing that somebody in the fitness or strength and conditioning field wants is someone on the floor with a phone who actually needs it. So I think there'll be kind of, and this is where I think my zone has done a great job with, with like being able to get the heart rates, you know, from the strap up on the TV, because now we can get everybody's heart rate and be able to get feedback. But the person doesn't, you know, they have an app that's on their phone, but they're not interacting with their phone during the course of the workout. And I, this has been a kind of a consistent problem for me with the tech people as we've gone along and, you know, whether it's things like uh, velocity based training, you know, push systems, those kind of things, everything is, I either need an iPad or a phone. And, and I don't think, I don't think that people are getting the idea that that's not what we need. They think it's more, and it's the same thing we were talking, again, we took talking about our kids. What we want with our kids is less tech, not more tech. And there are so many people advocating for, I don't want my son to have his phone in school. And there are so many people thinking, oh, they need to have their phones. You know, their phones have their calculators on them and blah, blah, blah. But I know that if my son has his phone, he's going to be Snapchatting people and he's going to be trying to get on YouTube and he's going to be trying to play a game on his phone during a class. So I see them as incredible sources of distraction. So sometimes I think the the, the evolution or the real revolution will be back to books and manual math and a lot of these things that people – don't interact with. I find my kids now, I get very frustrated in school that my kids, they don't read or write nearly enough for my taste as far as school goes. That's interesting to think about because, and you've had some very, you know, some very uh, interesting reactions to a program like CrossFit. But I think one of the things that CrossFit did really well, Mike, and you might agree with this, is what a friend of mine said about it a couple of years ago. He goes, CrossFit made it great to run around the block again. You know, where I think that, that that has had a good effect on the industry, where one of the things I like about it is it's low tech. You're lifting iron, you're lifting steel, you're lifting your body weight, and that's it. I mean, you maybe record your score on a whiteboard or a chalkboard, but really, you know, I'm one of these people, I don't want another app. I don't want my phone to come between my, a client and myself. I, you know, it's okay to have as a resource, but I like that interaction. So I think you're interested, your, your, your comment about the, devolu- the devolution is, is right on. Yeah, and that's where I think I've always said that the whole thing about CrossFit was a great idea that went bad. When when it if CrossFit had just said we're going to include the idea of technical failure in CrossFit and so when you can't do it perfectly anymore you have to stop, it probably would have literally ruled the exercise world. But instead it didn't and and as a result we had you know sort of like the birth of the CrossFit fails website. I just, my daughter just showed me another one of a guy literally hitting himself on the head after doing a jerk and knocking himself to the ground. Oh, you know, <laughs> And so you have these kind of these silly things that, uh, it just surprises me it, it, very much anymore that now you can see quite a bit. It may, that's, that makes me go to YouTube though. Yeah, it does. It, it was surprising me. I mean, heaven forbid I, a, I'd have to record myself and, and I begrudgingly do that sometimes just to try to do some promotional stuff around the podcast, but, but B, if I ever did that, drop something on myself, I'm certainly not sharing to anybody. I think I'm going to delete it right away. I don't understand how those things make it on the internet. I don't either. And especially, but again, if you've ever watched ridiculousness on, uh, yeah, yeah. MTV. So you realize it's the things that people love. And that's, it's again, that's this video generation, phone generation. People like nothing better than to film 
somebody else screwing something up and get it on YouTube as fast as they possibly can because ridiculousness amazes me because they don't solicit videos. They just take stuff off YouTube. Yeah. So you have, you're paying no content for a 30-minute show. You're paying yeah. a host and you're paying and you a couple get- guys in the back anything from hysterical to cringeworthy to whatever, but strictly by somebody cruising YouTube. Yeah. And and that just, I think that the whole, this whole idea now that we need tech and stuff, I always, you know, you go to a show like a big trade show like Ursa or something, or, you know, over in Asia and you see all these people trying to come up with these apps. And I'm like, I look at them, just what you said. I'm like, you guys don't get fitness. We don't need an electronic interface in order to grip a kettlebell or over to grip a barbell. You know, we don't need that. Just, you know, give me some room, give me some space and give me a piece of equipment. That's it. And and with that, you know, one of the things that you're known for, Mike, and one of the reasons why I want to speak with you again today is that you're known for changing your mind. You know, and I think the one, one of the things that I've noticed doing this podcast now is that the more that people know, the less resolute they are in their answers. Because, you know, if you, if I interview Stu McGill or, or Greg Cook or somebody like that or yourself – you don't want to give me a specific answer because you don't know the exact scenario. Do you think that's a danger, you know, in fitness in general, when people try to be too confident about the advice they give? Oh, yeah. It's funny because that's one of the things that I've been uh, including in my presentations recently is something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Have you ever heard of Dunning-Kruger effect? No, no, not yet. All right. So Dunning-Kruger effect is um, basically it's it's a psychological condition in which people of low ability drastically overestimate their ability and it's really documented that's what makes it most interesting is that it's not um it's not somebody's opinion so here's the actual definition a cognitive bias whereby people who are incompetent at something are unable to recognize their own incompetence not only do they fail to recognize their incompetence they're also likely to feel confident that they actually are competent this is I mean, epidemic in fitness, this Dunning-Kruger effect, because most of the people who are most resolute are in their 20s. And whether it's CrossFit or Westside or whatever kettlebells, whatever their thing is, they are so absolutely positive that their thing is the thing. It's almost a, a religion type effect that these people have. And it's, you know, you kind of go, it's like that they don't know what they don't know sort of thing. And that's the reality is that they know so little that they can't even poke holes in their own arguments. So they become enamored of the first thing that they experience and then go out and, and really preach that hard with great resolve and make fools of themselves. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, we see that and that's, and that's one thing that I think is so interesting and why I want to have this conversation for the podcast because the one thing I, I tell people is if you ever get somebody telling you exactly what you have to do without really doing having much of a conversation with you, like if, if I met you and you said, hey, here's what you need to do. Don't eat carbs now. Do this, do that. That's the last person you should look to for advice. You know, what's an example? Because like I said, you're known for changing your mind. What's something you've changed your mind about recently and what caused you to change it? Oh, my God. There's so many well, – <laughs> I'll go back. I'll go with what caused me to change it first. (laughs) And I always, I laugh at people whenever anybody kind of brings this up. What caused me to change my mind is called learning (laughs) more specifically reading. And so I, I think the continued investigation of the science and the practice of what we're doing should consistently lead you to change your mind. 
because it's that amazing. Could you actually believe at any point in time that you had all the answers? And I mean, that's, that's just an absurd thought process that I have all the answers and they're all the right ones. And so there's a book, I, one of the other books I've read recently was called think like a freak, which is from the Freakonomics guys. And one of the things that they say early on in the book is that you don't know the answer, you know, an answer. And they use the example as the simple example of two and two equals four. So someone could look at you and say, that's the answer. But they go on and say, but so one and three equals four and four plus zero equals four and five plus negative one also equals four. And so the reality is two plus two is only one of the many answers to the question, what adds up to four? But most people aren't smart enough to think that way and aren't smart enough to realize, and that's this Dunning-Kruger effect, that that their answer is not the only potentially correct answer, or maybe even worse, they might be telling you two and two is five. They may be completely wrong. So um, there's, and the other thing they talk about to think like a freak is they say three most difficult words in the English language. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or I, so I, for I, here's what I think. Like, Go ahead. Yeah, I don't know. Here's what I think. Because people always say to me, do you know the best way to do blank? Whatever it is. And I was like, yeah, the, the way we did it yesterday. That's the best way that I know right now. But I, I will absolutely positively reserve my the right to change my mind about that based on this process of learning, based on reading. I, you know, I'll give you the, the – the, you mentioned Stu McGill. But Stu's a huge example. And I wouldn't say it's recent. It's probably now been over a decade. But – I remember listening to Stu talk about low back and about core. And I remember sitting there thinking, wow, we got this all wrong and thinking we need to change this. Okay. We're going to have to go back. And it drives my coaches crazy. When I come back from a seminar and, you know, especially one of these ones where I encounter this, the Stuart McGill's of the world, somebody who's really on the cutting edge and really changing the way that we do things and then say to everybody, yeah, well, you know how last week we were doing this? We're not going to do that anymore. And everybody freaks out. Like, what do you mean we're not going to do that anymore? That's what we've always done. It's like, yeah, exactly. That's what we've always done. But it didn't end up being right. And so as, as a result of it not being right, we need to change. And so, again, I mean, I, you know, I used to look at people. I mean, we used to do sit-ups. We used to do sit-ups where we held people's feet. We used to do crunches. We used to do Russian twists. Like, I... I could show you all of, I always said in 2004, when I wrote functional training for sports, I would say 50% of the core stuff in there was wrong or wrong based on how I feel right now. And, and that's one, one example, I guess. I mean, we used to run distances. We used to run four miles every Thursday. We'd take all our athletes out, probably everybody except our football players, and we'd run around the Charles River. So I could I could go on forever with a list of things that we were wrong about that we've since been able to go and either change or modify or whatever. And where do you, and one of the things I like, Mike, and I'll ask you a couple more titles in a minute. But where do you go to get most of your like strength and conditioning or fitness information? You know, I know you're on a speaker circuit with Perform Better, and and you do you will sit in. But like, what is somebody even with as experienced as yourself? Kind of where do you where are your go tos when you want to kind of push your thinking a little bit and try to get something new? I know this is going to sound a little bit nutty, but I love Twitter. I think if you follow interesting people on Twitter and then you kind of follow who they follow, you can really keep yourself very much abreast of what's going on. 
I, just by kind of following links around and clicking on stuff and seeing, okay, what leads me where. It, it's like, a, to me, it's almost a, a clearinghouse, a, like a first filter. So, and I think one of the things I always talk about is you need to be able to filter. That's the key. So that you don't just see every new idea and think, oh, this is a new idea. This is the right idea. You've got to be able to look at stuff and think, okay, this is a new idea. And let me look at this idea further. Let me look at this person further. Let me decide if this person, because I think in all of this process, you have to do a lot of personal vetting because the, the good thing about the internet is the amount of information that we can get. The bad thing about the information about the, the internet is the amount of bullshit is that we can encounter. So you've got to be able to figure out, okay, this guy's full of shit. He's an internet trainer. He doesn't train anybody. And wow, this guy's legit. He's actually doing this kind of on a day-to-day basis and knows what he's talking about. And that's a really difficult thing because people are so good now at creating a bio for themselves and creating a story for themselves. It's almost like an alias where you can just make shit up and people believe it. And I realized now that that was happening even when I was a kid. It was happening in muscle magazines. It was happening in a lot of the information that I was exposed to, but I wasn't smart enough to think that hey, maybe there's just some bullshit guy who's a writer who's writing all this stuff for muscle and fitness or for strength and health or for one of these magazines that I was reading who really didn't, has never done it. Now I know, I'm, I'm again, I think I'm a better filterer. <laughs> I'm making up words. <laughs> that's, all, that's always good, as, yeah. As I go along here. but uh, and, and the hard part is it's hard. it gets harder and harder to call these people out because – then it starts to come across as personal attack. So that's a personal attack. You just don't like that person. And I would say, you know, in a good percentage of the cases, I probably don't like the person who I think is an internet bullshitter. So it is harder to, to not make it look like a personal attack. And then there's the worst or a worse situation where it is somebody that you like, who you think is an internet bullshitter. And you don't really want to be the person that outs them. Hmm. So it, in both cases, it's difficult and it's very hard to look professional. So I don't know. I don't even know if I have the answer to that particular problem. But it's a situation where you really have to be conscious and cognizant and looking and saying, okay, who is this person? Is their resume real? Did they ever Have they ever actually done anything? Because as I said, I... I could sit here if I wanted to and out an awful lot of people and say, go look at this person's resume and realize that they've never really done anything (laughs) because it's very easy. If if you shout enough on the internet that you are the expert in blank, eventually people will start repeating it. Yeah. And that makes, I like the fact that that you say that you, you, you retweet Twitter and because I do, it's funny, Mike, I do the same thing where I'll go through and I'll look at different Twitter feeds and I'll look at, you know, my Facebook feed but but I like the fact of of being you know it is filtered. Some of the stuff I'll read, which I know is kind of bogus, but I'm like, okay, where are they getting this? You know, what kind of I want to know who's putting information out, so I know how to counter it, or I know kind of what's getting out there, so I know if if somebody asks me, you know, if somebody in the gym asks me, hey, what about this? What about this? I at least know the source for it, and can and can answer it somewhat intelligently. And some of the stuff is just pure entertainment. But, but again, with others, with a lot of professionals out there, if they're adhering to the principles, they're probably, probably applying the principles just in a way 
because I look at myself as a pretty linear guy, Mike. I don't, I'm not that creative. And some of the stuff I see some people do are amazingly creative. In your mind, you know, when you look through this stuff, when, you, when you're filtering it out, what are kind of some of the bedrock principles that, that are a sniff test for you when it comes to fitness information? Well, I mean, bedrock principle is I want – Alan Cosgrove always uses the term been there, done that, still doing it. So I, I try to look for people who have been there, who have done that, and who are still doing it. That That's one of the things I really like to see. Like I always say when people – I love when people argue about – Stuart McGill and about what he's talking about in terms of low back health. And I look and think this guy has dedicated his entire adult life to studying the spine and studying the low back. And then you get these sort of armchair clowns who start arguing saying, Oh, I still think crunches are fine. You know, I've done my research and I look and think you're arguing with someone who spent their entire adult life and who has no real vested interest. Stu's finally gotten a little bit better about like selling a book or selling a product, but for probably 30 years, he just studied the spine. And so you've got to be able to find those guys or if it's, you know, Mark Verstegen, like Mark was a great coach before athletes performance, before Exos. And it was actually doing it at a really high level with lots of athletes. And so I think that's the stuff that I look for. And I also, as I said, I look for people whose resumes are real. If I see somebody who I know has bullshitted their resume a little bit, even if it was 10 years ago, then I'm always skeptical about that person. And, and I think that, you know, there, there are people like that in terms of they, their graduate assistant position or something like that, be all of a sudden becomes much more glamorous than what it actually was. And those kind of things make me a little bit nervous. I, I watch for people who misrepresent whose information it is like people who are people who are slow to reference. I'm not a big fan of people who are quick to reference. I'm a big fan of. So I always will say to people, Hey, this is who's This is where this came from. I don't want, I don't want people to think that this was me. Whereas other people might almost want to create the illusion that this was their idea. So these are all kind of parts of the process of this, I think difficult filtering thing that we're going to try to do. And I think that's important for people listening to hear is that there's a lot of right information out there is finding out what's right for you, you know, in terms of what does an individual client need? What is, you know, what do they need to make changes to their body? Because again, I think a lot of people, you know, imagine this, Mike, people want the easy answer, right? <laughs> they want to know what are the three things I can do that get, you know, has me looking like Jennifer Garner, you know, in two weeks. You know, I, I think we get in this mindset about um, about that. When a client asks you about what it takes to achieve a certain goal, what's your response? I mean, how do you coach them up on what the expectation is when they start you know, working with you or working in your program? Well, it's, I like, uh, I like this. if you've read Slight Edge, I love the Slight Edge idea in terms of, and I like, uh, they talk about it too in extreme ownership, the idea of simple but not easy. And I think that's one of the things that I tell people right off the bat is that simple but not easy. Because I, I think there is, I think, I mean, if you think about a decent diet and progressive resistance exercise, you're probably going to get some uh, really good results. But progressive resistance exercise means that you need to consistently either do more weight or more reps on a really consistent basis. And from a diet standpoint, I always tell people diet is ridiculously simple. It's just hard to do. It's not, I mean, it's so uncomplicated. I tell people all the time, I can give you like a two minute diet lecture 
lean protein, vegetables, kind of limit your fruits. <laughs> okay, we're done. <laughs> and and people like, oh, you know, what about oatmeal? And I'm like, well, is oatmeal a lean protein, a fruit, or a vegetable? No. Okay, then that probably wouldn't make my list. If you said you wanted to lose weight, you know, what about, what, can I have pasta how many times a week? None, zero, because it's not on the list. And then people, oh, you can't do that. You know, you can't, um, whatever, vilify certain food groups or foods. And I'm like, well, if you want result, results, certainly you can. Why not? And as I said, it's, it is very simple, but not easy. I mean, like for me, I like, I always say the same thing. I like beer and I like ice cream and that's why I'm not ripped. But I know if I could eliminate beer and ice cream from my diet, I'd probably be a lot leaner. And sometimes it's a matter of making choices. And if you have people who think, okay, I'd, I'd rather have, I always said, if given the choice of beer, ice cream, or abs, I'm going with beer and ice cream. <laughs> I think, I think, Mike, you'd probably, you'd probably agree with me. If all of a sudden I started getting shredded and getting abs, my wife would have me very curious and want to know what's up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what are you doing? You know, why are you doing that? And I, I always joke about I drive a minivan now. I don't need to, you know, I don't need to be looking good on a. Uh, Instagram or Snapchat. That's not my. That's not my goal. And I think it's important that people have that expectations. So as we look look to wrap it up here, why do you think a lot of people are are, are scared to change? Because I think when I look at people in the industry who I really respect, I see that that you guys have evolved over the years. That you're not afraid to listen to a new point of view. But why do you think some people might be hesitant? Why do you think some people get so stuck in what they what they've been preaching? Sorry, I'm going to go back one step on you because you made a really good point. You said I don't need to look good on Instagram or Snapchat or whatever. Uh, when we're talking about filtering, I always think if the person has their shirt off in the picture, I automatically assume they don't know what they're doing. So uh, I'll, I'll say that before I, uh, um, before I take the next question. But <laughs> I, I think the reason people are afraid is it goes back to that, that I don't know. I was wrong. I got a slide. And you, you're, you might be old enough to appreciate the slide, but I have a picture of the fawns. Henry Winkler, because oh, yeah. if, yeah. if you've watched Happy Days when you were a kid, you remember that the Fonz couldn't say he was wrong. He'd be like, I was right. Couldn't even get the word out. And, and I think what I found with a lot of people is that they think it makes them look bad to change. I've had, I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had with people who said, but how do I go back and tell my clients this? Said so really simply, you go back and say, hey, I went, and I always say to if you make it personally, I went to a seminar and I was thinking about you and thinking about your back problem. And I listened to this great expert on low back pain. And he said that we would do, you know, we shouldn't do this anymore. And usually the person is so caught up in the glow of you went to a seminar and you were thinking about me that they never even get to the part of, oh, you didn't know what you were doing before. Do you know what I mean? So it's because I've done this over and over again. I and mean, I've been doing it for 30 years where I come back and be like, no, but that will, we don't, we're not going to do that anymore. That, this, this is better. And never in any point has anyone thought that I was dumb for that. Never has anyone ever looked at me and thought, oh, you screwed me because you were doing the wrong thing. Because I always have felt like I was doing the best I knew. And I use this quote a lot you know, that, that I like, you know, do the, do the best you can where you are with what you have. Because when people say, oh, I don't have this or I don't have that or, you know, we don't have a good weight room or we don't have this equipment. I'm like, do the best you can where you are with what you have. But in the same sense, don't do less than the best you can. I've gone through this. When I've talked to people, and I can remember talking to college strength coaches about chin-ups and saying how critical chin-ups have been for us 
in terms of preventing shoulder injury to the effect where we don't really see a lot of shoulder injuries anymore, but our athletes can really pull. I mean, our girls are doing weighted chin-ups. So our guys are doing really heavy weighted chin-ups. And I've had people say, yeah, I really should change that. And then I go back and I look at their program two years later and it's still got lat pull-downs in it. And I realized they were just too lazy to delete pull-down and write in chin-up or to tell their athletes that they need to start doing chin-ups or whatever it was. But whatever the reason was, they didn't make the change. And I think the reason that we're leading the industry in so many areas is because we haven't been afraid of that. And I think that's really important. It's, it's funny, Mike. I love the fact that you said that, and, and it made me laugh because Monday clients, my Monday clients are always kind of like, when I come back from something like, oh, God, what did you learn this weekend? Because, you know, I'll be, I'll sit there and go, oh, I, I was at a seminar or I was at a workshop this weekend. And, you know, some of them enjoyed it and they, they always enjoyed it. But I think you're right because I'd always say, hey, you know, I thought about what we've been doing and, I, you know, I learned a different way or here's a new way or let's try this and see what happens with that. And my clients always always appreciated that and they appreciated the fact that I was going to to, to workshops and learning something new and, and trying to bring it back and apply it to, to their lives. You know, as we look at this, you know, what are your, I mean, you just talked about the components of a successful program, you know, you do a progressive resistance exercise. And for you, what are some of the key moves? Like you, you mentioned pull-ups and I know you're a big fan of a couple of different, you know, workouts and it's hard. And I'll qualify this, Mike that you can't really give an exercise prescription or exercise program without knowing a lot of parameters. But in general, what are some of your kind of like your go-to moves or kind of foundational, what you feel should be foundational components of, of a good um, conditioning program? And I think you're right. So I, I think you're looking at it and saying, can you give, so if you said to me, give me a really broad based answer, I would say, okay, we're going to think about, uh, bench press or dumbbell bench press or push up something where we're pushing and we're going to think about chin up or parallel grip chin up or uh, the ring row or TRX row from a pulling standpoint. We're going to think about some kind of split squat, some kind of one leg straight leg deadlift. I would tell you those are the fundamentals. Those are the big four that we've got to be able to work with. And then much like we've done kind of in our certified functional strength coach idea, there's always going to be regressions based on those. How do I regress that pattern? But I want that single leg hip hinge pattern. I want that single leg knee dominant pattern. And then I want to be pushing something and I want to be pulling something. And, and then I think you start adding in the pieces. I always say you add in the pieces based on time. So when you start thinking about core training and anti-extension and anti-rotation and anti-lateral flexion and adduction and abduction and all these other things, you're looking and saying, okay, how much time do I have? How much more can I do than say the the big four things that I want to do? And that's a, that's an interesting point. And, and you cover that right in in your books. I mean, your, your most recent book you rewrote uh, was it Advances in Functional Training for Sports? I rewrote Functional Training for Sports, which became New Functional Training for Sports, which is really a new book, effectively. Because it was it was so different from the 2004 version, but yeah, I mean, I think that's at that time we talked about the idea of push pull, knee dominant, hip dominant, and uh, and I always give credit uh, Patrick Ward, who's with Seattle. Uh, oh my God, yeah, Seattle Seahawks. His wife one time said, "I always tell people just to push something, pull something, and do something for their legs." And I reuse her quote all the time. Her name is Yvonne Ward, but I always talk about Yvonne and and that quote because. It's pretty accurate. If you push something and you pull something and you do something for your legs, 
and and then I always kind of amended it myself. If you can throw in a couple core exercises in that in with it, maybe a maybe a carry and some kind of anti extension exercise, you have a pretty complete program. And again, in this general assuming yeah, everybody's yeah, yeah. reasonably healthy and moves okay kind of world. And, and with that, the last programming question here, carries are something that have been really, I think, been not new by any, chance, by any stretch of the imagination, but we're starting to see them a lot more. I'm not starting to notice that a lot more people are using them in the gym. What are some of the benefits? I mean, do you use carries in some of the programs that you do and, and actually why? We do a lot of carries now. It's a Dan, you know, it's funny because I've had Dan John out, hmm, I'm going to say five years ago to speak. And I love Dan. I think Dan's one of the great, thinkers of our field and the one thing that i noticed and this is you know again filtering dan's thought process was very similar to ours push pull legs kind of philosophy pretty basic the big difference for him was he felt like everybody should be doing carries and i kind of thought well here's a guy who's pretty smart who sees this as a very separate category and i realized it's a separate category that we don't address and then interestingly enough right around the same time McGill started really addressing carries and talking about he was studying strong men and talking about like yoke carries and things like that and talking about the the spinal loads and the core loads and the hip loads that he was seeing from these really heavy strongman carrying events and how much benefit they had. And, and it was sort of this um, confluence of worlds for me where all these things were kind of colliding at the same time. And I thought, all right, we've got Stu on one hand talking about carries. We've got Dan on another hand talking about carries. Two really smart guys. Here's an area that we're not using at all. We need to add this into our core training arsenal. And so we did. And, and clients like it. I mean, I, I think there's something primal about carries. Yeah, no, I think clients do like it. And it's very easy to explain to people. You say, suitcase carry. I said, this is for when the wheels break on your suitcase. Because there used to be the day when people actually <laughs> carry suitcases. But that doesn't really happen anymore. But you start thinking – about those things and, you know, farmers carries, you know, people, because you think about what people struggle with groceries and up and down stairs and, and, you know, people are you know, picking up kids, those kind of things. Those are carries. Carries are very much a part of our daily life, but we don't really train for them or practice for them probably like we should. Yeah. I think that's been an interesting, and I, you know, the observation I made, and this is from working with Michelle Dalcourt um, over the years is the only time we ever pick something up and put it right back down the same place is in the gym. You know, if you're at home, Mike, and you pick something up, more likely you're taking it somewhere. You know, even if it, oh, you're yeah, at work. I always joke about that. I always think when we're doing carries, I always think like, I wish I could somehow figure out a way to commercialize <laughs> this so I can get my client moving <laughs> something for somebody else, you know, because the whole idea of kind of take this thing, walk it down to the other end of the room, bring it back where you got it. It seems pretty silly. Yeah. But so does riding a bike that doesn't go anywhere or <laughs> running on a, Running on a treadmill that doesn't go anywhere or any of those things. So, well, the, the, when I when I played rugby years ago in DC, one of the guys on the team, one of the guys in the club, owned a moving company, and so all the guys that would come over from Australia and, and South Africa, New Zealand, they were all legal. They were over on tourist visas, and they if they wanted to make anytime they wanted to make extra money, they'd go hop on a moving truck for the day and just move furniture all day. And uh, those guys were always, were, I mean, they're always better players anyways. They're coming from the, the countries, but they were training all day. They, they're training for eight hours a day. So you could do a whole new conditioning program, like for, you know, sign up for my 30-day conditioning and just stick somebody on a moving truck in the middle of summer. And I think uh, they'd get in shape in no time. 
Absolutely true. <laughs> or they get hurt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be a different way of looking at it. So wrapping up here, you, you mentioned a few different books. And, and one of the things that, that you always talk about in, in your seminars is reading from outside sources. You mentioned um, Slight Edge. It was a Slight Edge. Slight uh, Edge. And then it was by the authors of Freakonomics. What was uh, what was the, Think what was, Like a Freak was the other one, and Extreme Ownership, which is um, Jocko. I think it's Winnick, Wilnick. I forget how to pronounce his last name, but um, and Extreme Ownership. Extreme Ownership, yeah. Um, Slight Edge is Jeff Olson. I can't think of the Freakonomics guys right now, but it's easy if you just type in "Think Like a Freak," it'll pop up. Uh, but there's so many. I, I I that's what I joke about. I don't get to read nearly enough. Yet I feel like I read five times more than everybody else. So I guess it's not terrible. Not a, not a bad thing. Not, you know, not a bad thing at all. And then, you know, to, go, you know, to, to, to finish this up, where, where can people get more information about, about what you're doing? Cause you know, you have a lot of information online. I know you have strength coach, you have strengthcoach.com, correct? Strengthcoach.com is really the place. If people want to interact with me on a daily basis, strengthcoach.com is the place to go. I'm trying to actually streamline that. Anthony Rana has been helping me with some of this stuff because I think in some ways we probably have too much stuff out there. And as a result, we probably water stuff down and compete with ourselves a little bit. So I'm hoping to, um, to be able to pull some of these things a little bit more under one umbrella and, and be able to make access. And then, and then finally, this is a question I want to ask Mike. There's, I knew there was something else that, that was blanking on me. Who are some of the up and coming guys? I mean, one of the things I've tried to do in the last year or two is really try to take a few guys, few you know people, both men and women, under my wing, because you know I, I I'm getting closer to fifty and I don't want to be traveling around as much anymore. And I look at part of my responsibility and obligation is to try to coach up and and work with the next generation. And I've seen you. I, I can't remember if I heard you in a podcast or seen you write something about some of the people that have worked under you who are now doing big things in, in fitness. Who are some of the people that are you're paying attention to that are in the next generation they are going to be leading the way for us going into the future? I really think that the kids that we have doing our certified functional strength coach cert are some of the best young coaches that there are out there. And Kevin Carr and Marco Sanchez and Brendan Rerick and Ken Whittier and Steve Biglow. And these are all people that, that work for us. But we've been and, – and I don't want to say lucky. I guess I should say we've been really good about – accumulating tremendous talent. I think we've accumulated talent like like Mark Verstegen did in the early 2000s when he had Sue Falzone and Brandy Marcello and Darcy Norman and so many of these, you know, Luke Richardson and Joe Gomes and, you know, people that all went on to do really good things, really big things. I think we've got that kind of group right now at NBSC. And it's cool because a bunch of these people, Kevin is getting a chance to present that perform better and Brendan is and Marco Sanchez is going to do a little bit of the hands-on stuff. So Chris is giving them some opportunity to get out in front of people. And when people see them and listen to them, they automatically fall in love with these guys because they're really good at what they do. And that's, and that's cool to hear you say that. And, and I'm definitely going to post this up. And one of the reasons why I want to get a hold of you now, Mike, is to help promote the Perform Better Summits. Now, people don't need to be a coach or a trainer to, to attend one of these summits, do they? No, they actually they don't. I think um, you know we, we get – I mean, coaches, trainers, physical therapists, athletic trainers, some people who are just fitness enthusiasts themselves. And I think there are some people who go and then become coaches or trainers because they get so excited and so enamored of the process. But I do think, like anything, it's not perfect, but I don't think there's any question that 
it's the best education resource you can get because the the depth and breadth of people that you get, if you stay for all three days and listen, I think you get 40 different speakers. I don't know if it's 40 at each event or 40 spread over the four summits, but it, it's quite a few people that are at each one. And you get some people that are the industry leaders like Stuart McGill and guys like that. And then sometimes you'll hear guys, you know, new, like I said, these up and coming guys like a, you know, like a Kevin Carr or a Marco Sanchez or a Brendan Rierick or even Anthony Rennes speaking this weekend in Orlando. But the ability to interact with these people to get a lot of quality information is really high, particularly based on the, the dollar cost of doing it and the amount of time that you need to spend doing it. You basically can really get a huge educational boost in a weekend. So it's worth it. And I don't get, again, I'm not a I'm not kind of a compensated. I'm, I speak for Perform Better, and they pay me, but I don't get, I don't get any more money if they get more people at the summits. No, but I think it's good to know. I always like pointing that out, Mike, because I think people that are listening to this, that kind of want to learn more about this, they like your point of view. You can, they can get that for a few days. And I, last summer was one of the first years I didn't get a chance to go by Long Beach for at least one day. And I have to tell you, it kind of bummed me out for the entire month of August, you know, because that's one thing I look for that shot in the arm, man. I look, I look for the chance to come there and just sit in the, sit in the room and just listen and, and absorb, absorb information. Cause I always, I always walk away with, Oh wow. I didn't think about it that way. Or Jimmy Christmas, you know, man, I, I was going about that the wrong way. And I think, you know, just your leadership about being open about changing your mind, I think is, is an important message, which is exactly why I wanted to you know, have this conversation with you today. So I really appreciate your time. No, I appreciate you having me on. As I told you last time we did this, I really enjoy podcasting. Again, when you think about sort of the pursuit of information, this is a great way to get information because you can now, it's like home delivery for knowledge because you can just click on, look, it's okay, who do I want to learn from and go learn from that person. It's a great resource. And you didn't even know this, and, and this is for listeners. I'm going to leave this in, in, the, in the final mic. Um, but uh, I'm interviewing Stu again in two weeks. I interviewed him a few months ago, and uh, I actually, when I talked to him in a couple of weeks, I want to be talking with him about carries and about functional training. So, yeah, I sent you some notes about the conversation today, but I didn't mention that at all. So I love the fact. I want to say thanks for really, uh, really kind of helping me promote one of the next shows that's coming up. My pleasure. He's like I said, he's a guy that I mean has really. When you think of it, if you, if you start talking about the people who made fundamental change in the way you do things. He would clearly be one of those people. Now, what Mike didn't realize when we're having this conversation is that a few days later, I had an interview already scheduled with Dr. Stuart McGill. So that's one of the cool things when you have that kind of synchronicity going on. What I try to do is I try to schedule great guests that are doing phenomenal things in exercise and fitness. And I know that Mike and Stu have worked together regularly and they speak at the same at some of the same events. It just was a lot of fun. I was sitting there giggling because, you know, as he's mentioning Stu, you know, he's like kind of, I'm like sitting there thinking, oh, this is awesome because I have him coming up. But you can tell why Mike has such a great reputation. You may have heard, may have read about Mike Boyle. He's often featured in Men's Health, Mike Boyle's Strength and Conditioning, his gym in Woburn, Mass, right outside of, of, of Matt, right outside of Boston. My mouth is running, getting a little tongue-tied here. But his gym has frequently been rated as one of the top gyms in the country by Men's Health. And Mike has worked with a variety of people from, you know, young, you know, from young athletes, you know, in high school, all the way up to older adults, to professional athletes. And he really is. The thing is, the method, the system is always the same. And the cool thing is he's always refining his system. 
And he shares about what works. And he has an open mind. He's willing to sit down and listen and go, wait, I might, I could be doing it a different way. I could be doing a little more efficiently or I didn't think about that. And that's why I want to have that conversation with him. I think that's so refreshing. And again, folks, I will say this as adamantly as I can. If you ever are, are ever talking to anybody about exercise and fitness and they tell you that their way is the only way, your first job, your first exercise is to turn around and walk away from that person. There is no one way. The only thing I will tell you about exercise is that a lack of exercise will kill you. <laughs> Let me say that again. The one definitive thing we know about exercise is that if you're not physically active on a regular basis, if you're not active for at least 30 minutes a day on a regular basis, if you're sedentary, if you make certain lifestyle choices, you're taking years off of your life. When it comes to exercise, we don't know what's going to work for you. There's going to be some trial and error. You have to play around with it a little bit. Maybe you like barbells, maybe you like kettlebells, maybe you like yoga, maybe you like Pilates. And guess what? After you've been doing something for a while, change it up. If you want to know why, go back and listen to my episode with Ryan Glatt, episode 113. Exercise has a significant effect on the brain. If you want to know exercise, how to help your body feel better and perform better, well, stay tuned for my next episode with Stu McGill, where we talk about exercise for the back, exercise for the core. That's what Stuart's work has been. Mike is a strength coach. Mike is all about helping people reach their, human, their, their performance potential. I was going to say human potential, but we're all humans. Mike's job is to help you achieve your highest performance available. I really recommend his books. He has some great books. I have all of his books, you know, functional training for sports, advanced functional training for sports, and new functional training for sports. Great systems in there. Great methodology. If you want to, if you need some ideas for how you can be training, especially if you're over the age of 35 or 40, guess what, guys? It ain't all about the bench press. <laughs> it ain't all about how much you can squat. It's about how well you can move. And that's one thing that the pro athletes are doing. When you, if you're a pro and you get that contract. What is it? NHL, MLB, NBA, NFL. If you're a pro and you're getting that contract, this generation of strength coaches aren't getting you bigger. They're getting you faster and more mobile. And Mike is one of the leaders in that, in that area. So again, that's why I wanted to have him on. I wanted you to hear from one of the top practitioners. It's one thing to, to talk to somebody who's doing theory, researching and writing about it. But it's another thing to listen to somebody who's in the trenches doing it day in, day out. And Mike is that guy. So Mike, thank you for your time. It's always an honor to speak with you. It's, I always learn a lot. And that's selfishly one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast, folks, is I get a chance to have these conversations with some of the top dogs in our business, some of the top minds. If you're enjoying All About Fitness, please do us a favor. Give us a quick rating. However you listen to us, let other people know that it's worth listening to. If you have any ideas for show ideas or for guests, please reach out to me, Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. That's Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. It might take me a little while to get back to you, but I will follow up with you. I really appreciate the interaction. If you want to see the blog posts, the articles that I write, you can follow me on PeteMC. That's PeteMC underscore fitness on Twitter. PeteMC underscore fitness on Twitter. And on Instagram, it's PeteMcCall underscore fitness. That's PeteMcCall underscore fitness on Instagram. Thanks for stopping by. I look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.